You are listening to a special emergency podcast uh, episode here of Rumble with Michael Moore. And we are focusing specifically on what is going on in Portland, Oregon, and the, uh, the secret police, the, the, the combat troops that have been sent to Portland by Donald Trump, and the resistance that's been going on in the street now for uh, two months since the murder of, of uh, George Floyd. And I have with me as my next guest, the uh, founder of Don't Shoot Portland. She has been active uh, in uh, this and other uh, uh, social justice groups in Portland for many, many years. She's a lifelong Portland uh, resident. Uh, please welcome uh, to Rumble, uh, Teresa Rayford. Teresa, how are you tonight? I'm doing all right. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. No, thank you. And thank you for the tremendous work you've done over the years. I was reading that, that don't shoot Portland, by the way, that there's a comma between shoot and Portland. So (laughs) the the name, it's not a filmmaking group, like don't shoot here in Portland or an anti-filmmaking group. It's a, it's a a group that was started because of violence toward people of color uh, in Portland, in and around Portland. And specifically in your case, why don't you tell us about a very tragic incident that happened uh, with, with your nephew? Well, in uh, September 26th of 2010, my nephew, Andre Payton, was killed in gun violence in downtown Portland's Old Town neighborhood. Um, He went to a nightclub that was for all ages. It was a hip hop show. Um, And he got there. He called his mom, said, "Um, you know, I just made it here. I'll call you when I'm on my way home. And before he could get into the club, someone had come around the corner and shot. And I believe that there were hundreds of people outside. There were about 67 bullets that rang out. And Andre was the person that got hit and killed that night. Um, One of the reasons that I became an activist was not only because I was alarmed at the violence and, you know, the fact that he had just turned 19, the fact that he had just graduated from high school, um, the fact that he was my brother's baby, his oldest child, you know, um, it, it just broke my heart completely. Um, so I just, I wanted answers on why there wasn't an effort to save his life because, uh, you know, after these types of tragedies happen, there's so many people that reach out and especially to families and they just want to console you or just let you know that maybe they witnessed it or give you information. And from the information that I was receiving, an, a Marine had reached out to me and basically said that he was at an event downtown he witnessed what happened. He tried to provide life-saving support to my nephew and that none of the uh, first responders, which at the time was the gang task force um, and our medical response, but that they would not uh, support the, the saving, the life-saving efforts, that he didn't even have access to a tourniquet or an AED device, which could have helped keep my nephew's heart uh, going. So he used his belt from his own pants and you know just tried to do what he could do and what he had done in the military. And so um, having that information and wanting to understand why were there so many agencies inviting me as an individual speaking out against my nephew's death and wanting answers, they, they invited me to what they call the gang task force meeting. And this was a meeting with like 70 different agencies uh, throughout the city of Portland, the state of Oregon, legal people, TriMed, our education system, the health system, all these different agencies. Um, basically saying that they're coming together to offset the violence in our community uh, through an effort of engaging with our community. Uh, But I didn't see through the process that they had any actual um, processes that would stop the violence or would create infrastructure and safety nets for communities that were being harmed by violence or that were being uh, criminalized through their process of identifying who and what violence looks like in the community. And when I say that, we, we all know there's a school to prison pipeline. Uh, we already know that there is a, a, an irregular priority on identifying black people in America, even if they're just walking to a bus stop or if they're going to get health care or if they're, you know, hanging out in a park. Um, but we had systems and funding that basically provided money for those type of wraparound services. And as someone that had been working with CPAs and accountants, and understood finance, to me, it seemed like racketeering. I was like, well, this looks pretty odd that all of you are here to receive money because of the amount of children that are being killed in gun violence, but none of your institutions are set up to address that violence 
or to provide support to families or communities that are being faced with the challenge of it. And so I started calling out like the words they would use, like at risk, disadvantaged, marginalized. And I would utilize that that experience in that conversation to talk to like auditors or state legislators or even just the secretary of state or department of justice um, to kind of like investigate those agencies and their priorities and where their funding was coming from. And so let's say that was my protest. I needed to see on the record, what were people doing in our state to address gun violence? And why was it such a, a crisis that was not being invested in to create a solution? And why did my nephew have to die? And it just seems like now with all those answers, so many years later with all the audits and all the information, um, that it is criminal negligence, that it is racketeering, and that it is politically motivated. Um, and that is the system we want to break. So now my organizing and activism has turned into protesting. And so since Mike Brown and Trayvon, um, the street action became necessary because we could connect the deaths of those people to this data and to this information, and we could get families that were affected to go to their legislators or their city council meetings or their community, their county commissioners to document that these occurrences had created disparities or inequities within their families. And my intention is to indict those systems with that evidence and those testimonies so that we can, again, hold it accountable to dismantling the policy, which is inherently racist and legislated with funding because of the racism. Um, so yeah, that, that I yeah. think why they don't like what we do. Um, we show up and protest, but we protest and demand audits. Yeah, no, I'm sure they don't like you at all. Well, let's help out some of the white people who might be listening to this. Uh, because when you started talking, some of them were probably thinking, Oh, finally, Mike is going to talk about black on black crime. Black on black violence, you know, there's white people just kind of, why are we always talking about the police shooting black people? There are black people shooting black people and that's what we should. Focus well, we don't on. even know because they don't investigate those crimes. Right. And that's the problem, especially when you have a police force and a big. But the assumption is made if like your nephew was going to a club uh, and somebody drove by, it must have been other black people. When no, the it was the white club in downtown Portland. Exactly. We're we're, we're, and Cooch. Yes, correct. <laughs> and we're talking about, again, this is the whitest large city in the country. Mm -hmm. So this was, but the assumption I'm telling you, when people heard you describe that, the image that went in their mind is uh, sort of, uh, you know, boys in the hood kind of scene where a bunch of black kids drove by and opened fire, 67 shots, and your black nephew is killed. The fact of the matter is, though, number one, we don't know who shot him because, like in so many cases, yeah. when it comes to a black victim, the amount of resources that are put into uh, trying to solve that murder, this murder now is 10 years old mm -hmm. in Portland, Oregon, and remains unsolved. With over 200, when, whenever there is a gun-related crime um, or violence is happening, and it's usually seasonal, and our police force does more informant work than any other agency in America. And most of their informants are the same children they play with at the Boys and Girls Club and at the, the you know, Portland Activities League that is led by officers. So that there becomes a problem because these, all of that influence and all of their su suggestion on where the violence is coming from, like you're saying, there's no, why wouldn't they protect their lives? Why wouldn't they investigate the crimes? Why wouldn't they know who's committing the crimes? Um, why would they have children participate in crime fighting or investigative practices knowing that their lives could be harmed? Like there's so much complex uh, irregard for life in regards to their community engagement and community policing. Um, that is just disgusting. Even for children wanting uh, free lunch programs, you have to waive your FERPA rights. Um, and that lasts up until that child's 25 years old. They They've created a standard of identifying children as youth or juveniles just so that they could fit into funding that is literally used to identify disadvantaged, at-risk, and marginalized kids. And guess what? If that's the standard for you, there's no appropriate measure to invest in any other outcome. Wow. So, okay, so <laughs> let's unpack some of what you just said because that's, okay. that's an amazing way to look at it that we never, we white people, never look at it. <laughs> Uh, this way that that these the police athletic league and the and the uh, boys and girls clubs that the police help run 
Um, this is something the white community does not hear very often. That what what you know, yes, they might be all they might be shooting hoop and playing baseball or whatever, and and the cops are there to you know it's kind of a nice thing to do. But there is an ulterior motive mm-hmm. with this, and that is to create as young as possible a generation of snitches and informants, so that so that um, they can get they can get into the black community in a way as white officers they really can't mm-hmm. they can't because they aren't that community and they probably live in the suburbs and so only 18 percent of our officers live in oregon wait a minute mm-hmm. stop there was a document that just came out there's an audit that just came out last week so what you're okay hang on yeah they don't so live what, there. okay they come from no, vancouver I, so they come from Vancouver, which is the, not Vancouver, Canada, but Vancouver is Washington. the city right across the river in the, the state of Washington. Are. <laughs> in the, yes, in the state of Washington. So basically, okay, 18, <laughs> oh, but I just want to say it again, and I'm going to give you a chance to retract what you just said. 18% of the members of the Portland police force live in Portland. Yep. And the rest, the majority of the rest live not even in Oregon. Mm-hmm. They live in the state of Washington. Oh man. Okay. So, okay. So you've got their, they start with the young kids. Now explain the, the free lunch program at school. The alter, one of the ulterior, ulterior motives here, what is this, what is the, explain this program where where children essentially have to give up their rights in order to get some food. Yep. It's literally, okay, so FERPA rights are your Federal Education Rights to Privacy Act. That is a document. Will you spell that out? The uh FERPA is is called the Federal Education Rights to Privacy Act. Um, And FERPA. FERPA, FERPA rights. Right. So what what is that? And is this rights a, are to yeah. protect children that go to public schools from being investigated or interrogated or from having their information shared with different agencies that might violate their civil liberties or the civil liberties of their families. And so one of the things that happened with my nephew is that he was a participant in an organization called SCI, which was a close partner with our legislative partners, our government um, and the funding for a gang task force, like they literally centered the black children. They worked in the community policing model. Um, they received funding for sharing information. I assessed um, because of the FERPA rights, the children's rights were, you know, basically if you get the program services through SCI or through our Sun school program, which was with Multnomah County Health Department and part of the policing agency partnerships, um, then then you can get, you know, Sun School programming, you can get free lunch programming, you can go on field trips and stuff. And those were being, um, those disclaimers were on applications for free lunch and for after school programming. And it's crazy because one of me and the parents who was saying, why do I have to waive my child's verbal rights in order to get them into this program? Um, I said, well, wow, who's doing this and why? And we went around throughout the district and we went to all the schools right before school started a year after we realized the FERPA issue was a big issue and that it might have been connected to the overrepresentation in foster care system or the prison system or the juvenile justice system um, in regards to the reporting issues that teachers are mandated to do in the state of Oregon and all those other people are mandated, you know, uh, mandatory reporters. So you have mandatory reporters that work in close proximity with children that do not have any rights to privacy. And so instead of working with their family on issues like the child might be hungry, you have to refer that information out to agencies that otherwise would not know that that information was happening or that that problem was a problem. Um, So instead of you advocating for the family, you literally refer the family out to an agency. So when we did this study, our own little grassroots run into the agency, I mean, to the schools and asking for the, you know, let me get a free lunch application or let me get a Sun School application. We noticed that in predominantly white neighborhoods um, that they didn't have information on there at all about a purple waiver and that in the black communities where there were these community policing partnerships that not only did they have it, that they had on there that um, if you did not check the box that you would not be eligible for the services. Now, in the ones that were in between, it said, hey. Uh, here's a purple waiver, wave it or not. And it didn't say that you wouldn't be able to, 
you know, have the services not rendered to your child. So there were different levels of how they addressed that waiver and received that information. And it was really subjective to someone literally checking the box and giving the agency permission to share with their partners, which happened to be like the city of Portland and Portland State University and Multnomah County Health Department. And these are things, again, your civil liberties and your right to go to school doesn't mean that these agencies have the right to like have information about you or your family or permission to investigate y'all. But when you weigh those rights. But if a parent, if a parent waived their child's uh, uh, FERPA rights, uh, their right, uh, the right to privacy, et cetera, th- th- they still could get the, the free lunch during school, during the school day. Um, right? They would, they wouldn't know that if you don't know your rights, you don't know. And so if there's a box that's not checked and people are already kind of hostile towards you because they're treating you like a second class citizen, they'll say, Hey girl, you forgot to check this box. And you'll say, oh, okay. And you're just looking at the boxes you have to check to get your kids food. So they play on the ignorance or the fact that they're not informing. We're talking people. about food at school. You mean, I know, but we're talking about having access to referring your family out to agencies that get bonuses for those referrals. We're talking about not being able to quantify issues that actually could affect funding for our community policing partners because we need to know certain things that we can document so that we can get more funding. Like I used to work for an accountant. To me, this is racketeering and it's malicious. And that's why we have to teach families what it looks like so they can testify and call it out and so on. So you're saying that that black citizens have to be careful that so-called do-gooder groups uh, agencies yes. that are, they get bonuses uh, by, you know, based on how many, how many parents or students they can get to mark that box to give up their rights. The racketeering is taking place with all those groups that were in that room when they had you come and meet to talk about the gang problem. Yeah. But, but the, but the people that were making money off it were the groups that supposedly were designed to help people. And yet yes. what they were really doing is keeping themselves in business, giving themselves jobs and getting bonuses, doing what you, what you just described. And it got so bad because I would go in there and I'd say, hey, Tom Peavy, who's a Portland police officer who used to take the minutes at these events when it was called the gang task force. And I'd say, hey, send me the minutes from the last meeting because I would like I have all my stuff in the city of Portland archives and records. So all my notes and all that stuff the auditors there were like, yeah, we'll protect your assets and make sure that they're available to narrate later. But I used to ask for the minutes from those meetings because I would use that to kind of provide advocacy for families and kind of like investigate them for their experiences in relativity to what was being shared at these meetings. Um, and at one point, they, I remember going into one of the meetings and, you know, they were happy to announce that they had changed the um the platform like it wasn't the same entity right and so they were tom people was like yeah so we no longer have to keep minutes and i was like what public entity doesn't want to keep minutes like why wouldn't you want austerity why wouldn't you want to document what we're saying here so that we can actually do better or learn from this um but they were happy they changed like the name of it like two or three different times just based on how we were um, promoting it out to community and telling them that it was not a level of opportunity that they should participate in. Even so how do you, how do you, how do you keep going with, I mean, the, I would assume you know, this is Portland. So in that mm-hmm. room, you're dealing with a lot of, a lot of white people, but people consider themselves liberals, uh, mm-hmm. white liberals in there too. And they were mad at me. I kept thinking I was going to get killed in gang violence. I was like, oh, shoot, I'm going to get killed. And they're going to say it was gun violence. And why would they and why would they be mad at you? Because audits matter <laughs> because doing the research and getting information. Um, I believe that that's very important because to see who's making money off this. Well, right? to see who's making money off of it. And then what is the relativity of success for the people that you call at risk or marginalized or disadvantaged? What is the benefit of using the application of those words? on people and why would agency want to invest in keeping them there? You know, why wouldn't your agency want to invest in like outcomes? Why wouldn't you want to go out of business? I don't want, don't shoot Portland to last forever. I'll turn into a legal clinic or a legal referral service so we could help people. Right. Um, you you want to go out of business. You want to put yourself out of business. Absolutely. If you're, if you're really doing the job that you want to say you're doing, you want to live for a day where there's nothing called don't shoot Portland. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You know, 
Like, no, I never even wanted to create it. I got arrested and I was like, oh, I'm going to have to sue him. Let me create an agency so that I can create a, and provide legal support. <laughs> every, like, time, okay. every time we, every time I start a new movie, I say to the crew, we're, we are doing this so that we never have to make these movies again. We want to put ourselves out of business. We don't want to, yes. we don't want to keep, we should not have to even have to be making these movies. Let's make this the last movie we make. And then after this, you know, the, we, the problems are solved and we can go make that romantic comedy that we've always wanted to do, you know, something like that. But it's, but it's, you're, it's, oh, this is so, fr I did not uh, ask you to come on to talk about this particular, this particular part of the problem, but it's so revealing. I, 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 I called you because I, well, I saw the moms lining up there against the uh, federal secret police troops in the street there on Saturday. I saw this footage. I called up uh, the 17 year old who had shot it, shot a lot of the footage. And, um, and then we, we wanted to find out more about these, these moms, essentially, they called themselves a, a wall of moms up against the federal police. But then when we spoke to them, they cited you as the godmother of, 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 of trying to stop this kind of violence, whether it's state violence or state supported violence or state ignored violence in the yeah. case of how, if, if, um, if you need an EMT in the black community, I can guarantee you, you can guarantee everybody, everybody knows you're going to wait longer, uh, in the black community for that ambulance or that help, uh, to arrive. Uh, you're not going to go, you're not going to be taken to the best hospital, uh, in the city where, where wealthier people, uh, get to go to the hospital. And here we are 10 years later, you're, you're, there's going to be no resources put into trying to find out who committed this act of violence in this case against your nephew. Yeah. But, but they told me I should talk to you because their idea of showing up on Saturday to face down the secret police, um, they were and have been inspired by you over the years in Portland uh, because you've provided an economic and a political analysis of why we have this kind of violence in our society, that it doesn't just happen. And I mean, I've, I don't know, I've, I've said, I've thought this since I was a teenager, that if the person living next door to you is making 50, 60, $70,000 a year, what are the chances of them breaking into your house and stealing your computer? Exactly. <laughs> None. None. So if we just guaranteed everybody a decent job with a, with a great living wage, Imagine funding the money that we put in policing into actual city infrastructure and programming. Real, real services to help people in need. <laughs> like, right? why would we do that? You know, they do that in very rich communities where they invest in the infrastructure and water and different things like that. Um, yeah, they said only 18% of Portland's police live inside the city limits. Portland Mercury, does that matter? <laughs> Okay, you just said it again. <laughs> and that the majority don't even live in the state of Oregon. <laughs> it's shameful. I'm like, that's a shame. So, yeah. So, okay, so here we ha have Trump sending combat troops. Yeah. Who don't even look like they've been trained in combat, frankly. They, we learned uh, on this episode that they're driving around in rented minivans that they got from Avis or Budget Rent-A-Car. Uh, and, and then they pour out of the out of the minivan with their weapons that they don't seem, I don't think they know how to use them. And, um, and they're up against mostly young people who don't have weapons. Yeah. And, and this has been taking place actually before the secret police showed up, mm -hmm. taking place with the Portland police facing down these kids every night. And this kid that we just spoke to Garrison um, has been shot twice this week. Wow. With uh, with a rubber bullet and has got you know horrible bruises uh, to show for it, but um, if we really want to just go behind the visual of the awfulness of this and get to the core of why is this happening, why has Trump sent these troops? Why does he need to put down this incredible uprising after the murder of George Floyd? that has taken place in the smallest towns across the country where, where the vast majority of Americans say they believe in black lives matter. And, and this has got to look very scary to Trump 
and the people that support Trump, that there's been a shift in the country and mainly a shift in white people. Mm-hmm. And that they have got to be sitting around going, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? Why? <laughs> what, is it, what do you mean white people? Why? Are you, no, you don't say black lives matter. It's, it's our lives matter. All lives matter. You know? Blue lives matter. You know, and they, and they are losing. They're losing and the, they've lost the majority of Americans. They no longer seem to support this kind of thinking. And so what's going to come out of that? If, if, if you've got the majority of white people now saying that black lives <laughs> matter, that might mean, that might mean there's going to be healthcare for all. That might mean there's going to be daycare for all. That might mean there's going to, that we're going to not send people to prison uh, yeah. out of the black and brown community at such a fantastic, fantastic rate uh, of just stunning of how many people have been locked up since Bill Clinton uh, was president. It, it, um, what if we don't live like that anymore? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? And I think it seems like we might have a chance and, and I don't know, maybe I'm not a Pollyanna kind of person. I don't live for pie in the sky. I'd like my pie right now, please. But, um, I'm just saying that that there's something going on in Portland that we in the rest of the country need to understand. And if you could explain that to us and why <laughs> and why Trump has chosen Portland. He didn't choose Detroit, you know, he he, he didn't choose Philly. He he chose Portland. He's mad at us because when we get on platforms we say you're either anti-fascist or you're fascist. Um, he's mad at us because we say divest from agency that does not make statement to say that black lives matter. Um, he's mad because we use science and data to bring people into the fold of the black lives matter movement so that they can see the inequities of human rights and dignity play out in the healthcare and the education and all those other factors. And they become allies, whether they decide to create infrastructure that does not discriminate and will not participate in discrimination um, and is even willing to indict or leave um, those infrastructures. He's mad because during COVID, we organized community with mutual aid and did not give a fuck if he was sending money to Portland or Oregon and didn't even want anything to do with him. But we knew that the leaders did. So we were able to filter them out and disrupt their business as usual so that he didn't have that, that extra obstacle against us. Like he's just mad because we know how to organize out here. And the fact that we got the moms on the front line and that we have what three lawsuits so far and that we're uh, connecting with all of the different people and making sure that we have all of the video and that we're documenting all of the testimonials of all of the people, we will defund these processes and these systems that are harming us, period. Like that's the plan and we're doing it. And he knows that he knows that he's, he had Steve Bannon writing stories about us when we were burning flags after the Malheur um, verdict, when they acquitted the people for taking over stolen land here. Um, he literally like pointed a finger towards us and that created the obstacle of the Proud Boys. Like our family and our friends have been attacked by his people on the Max train and damn near murdered. Um, Demetra Hester, who just you know had to witness Jeremy Christian's sentencing and was verbally assaulted by him in the courtroom, who he loves Trump, and all of those people in his network love Trump. Um, his people are being locked up. Like, we're prosecuting white supremacists that run down black kids out here. Like, you can't fuck with black people in Portland right now, period, because everybody has a vested interest in our outcomes because they've seen what was on the record. They see how we were working and how the standard of our policies only dictated that black people didn't matter. It's a shameful existence to be a participant in and to know that you elected people that feel that way, but we're holding them accountable now by again, utilizing our ability to organize and bridge mutual aid resources. So that's that all of them are afraid. I think uh, really that probably Ted did, you know, conglomerate with him. I'm sure Daryl Turner and all those people did. Um, to get him out here because they don't know how to stop it. They even tried to kind of co-opt it by getting like the NAACP and some of their community partners to say, hey, Black Lives Matter because they were Black too. That didn't work out for them because everybody already knew the data and they could see that they were connected to the inequities. So all of the shit that America has done to Black people 
is literally on the record and all of us that are being quarantined have time to like read it and do the research and kind of connect the dots. And we're just saying, hey, help us dismantle it. White people like dismantling shit. You see, there's a whole get Karen <laughs> on our side movement. You know what I'm saying? Like if all those Karens that be caring so much start caring about black lives, we don't have to have police. <laughs> you know, they'll take care of all of it. If we, if we only have more Karen, caring Karens. Karen Karens. <laughs> yeah, Karen Karens. Yes, right. Wow. So so what do you make now? This is This is as we're recording this, I think. Uh, almost 60 days, 60 days of resistance in the streets and now going head to head with these federal secret police troops. Uh, you know, you're there. I mean, we want to know and, uh, you know, give us, give us the straight story of what's happening. I mean, the straight story is that they're attacking the jail support people. Um, there's like children and families that are doing protests throughout the state of Oregon they're saying that there's a siege that's taken over the city of Portland. There's literally two blocks in Portland that are having an active occupation. Um, the occupation is there because they keep arresting all these different people. And when people get out of jail, they literally need like either bus fare or transportation support. And because they're being tear gassed and assaulted, some of them need clothes and a ride home and some of them might not need to go home. So the people that are there are going to continue being there because they have to be there. Um, but that is the center of where their violence is at. They don't want those people to be there. Um, they don't want everybody to come back downtown to support those people that are constantly being there. Um, they don't want the people that are houseless to have advocacy. They don't want people, you know, like they don't want Black Lives to Matter here. They know we're organizing um, more than just showing up. They know that all of those bodies are not just bodies that don't know why they're there. Um, even in some of the media that's coming out, the mom's biggest issue was that they were trying to tell everybody about Shy India Harris um, and the fact that the Portland police were like saying, we're not going to solve the crime. We can't investigate because of the protests. We got two blocks of protest and the violence starts when they attack people. If they didn't attack people, it wouldn't even be national news. The federal officers wouldn't have to come here. But Ted, that was his reasoning. How do I eliminate the people sitting on these two blocks waiting for people we arrested last night? Oh, we're going to beat them up. We're going to tear gas them. So explain, yeah. explain to the people listening who Ted is. Uh, Ted Wheeler is the mayor of the city of Portland, who's literally right now using our platform to make himself a position to say that he cares. Um, he's yeah, because he's been on TV. He's been on TV all week sounding, uh, trying to sound like you. I know. Um, he's been studying me for a while. I've noticed that he's like a stand. <laughs> so what, what's the truth with him? What's the real truth with him? Um, he's a fascist. Uh, him and Donald Trump literally seem to be running from the same playbook. Um, Ted has always been a fascist since he started um, his administration. On February 9th, his police officers killed a 17-year-old while they were yelling to him to crawl and put his hands up and then Ted just um, like assaulted the family for seeking redress um, and just continued that same way. And so it's just, we've been terrorized in the city of Portland by him um, and Donald Trump. <laughs> so but again, to make the point though, so the mayor, but the mayor is a Democrat. He's a Democrat. Well, we don't know. He was you appointed don't. by Republicans to, to be the state treasurer. I mean, mm. like, he's, he's a white man in Portland. You don't have to be a Democrat or Republican. Or you just have to be white. Or he's a colonizer. What other things has the mayor done uh, since uh, being in office or even before he was in office that, that let you know that he was not really on the side of the people? Oh, I mean, it happened before. Uh, in October of 2016, uh, Ted had already become the mayor-elect because he won the primary here in Portland. Um, and then what ended up happening is that our mayor at the time, Charlie Hills, decided to fast track the collective bargaining agreement. And he knew that like our organization and other agencies were collectively engaging with community because he had made a promise that um, Ted had made a promise that, hey, yeah, if y'all elect me, that when the collective bargaining comes up in June of 2017, we'll work out a way to engage community so that we can address some of the issues with community violence and policing violence. And so that was great. It was like, okay, cool. We got our own mayor. He's going to do the thing. But in October of 2016, Charlie Hills and Daryl Turner and our city commission 
um, decided they were going to fast track the negotiations of the collective bargaining agreement. And so we staged the protest and passed out the draft. And we started this uh, in September and it lasted all the way till about October 16th of 2016. Um, and they ended up voting it in and assaulting us physically at City Hall. Um, and it was like really big news and everything else. But before all of it happened, for the weeks that we knew about it, because he was the mayor elect, our, our call to action from him was like, hey, Ted, we elected you as mayor. Even if you can't, um, you know, do anything about this, we need you to make a statement that is not fair and that, that you, you are denouncing it. But he didn't. He decided to kind of like connect with Charlie Hills and like get black community members that they knew to say that it was cool or that they were okay. Um, and he never made an address in regards to the fast tracking of the collective bargaining agreement. So when he got elected in January of that year, we already had lost respect for him. Um, and then, of course, people started dying on the streets because he didn't respond to their needs. And children started getting shot by the police because they knew they had a weak leader. Um, and it's just right now we're, you know, we got Donald Trump here because he used violence against us. And obviously, if our elected leaders were all congregating against us, talking about broken glass and graffiti, um, he felt that he had a reason to be here. They made it seem like the property was more important than the people. And so I think they're complicit. Hey, um, just, just before we go on, I, I need to do a little business here to support uh, one of our underwriters, the uh, people, the underwriters who support our podcast and help pay for us to get this out there to everybody for free. And our underwriter for today's episode is a company called Gabby, G-A-B-I. Now, Gabby, it's one of these companies that is set up kind of like, you know, the travel companies like Expedia and Travelocity. You want to go somewhere, you want to find the, the cheapest ticket, you go on one of those sites. They don't charge you for it. So it's like having a travel agent and you don't pay for a travel agent. You just go on there. It's free. You find the best flight, the cheapest flight. That's what Gabby is for insurance, for home insurance, for auto insurance, uh, not, not health insurance. Okay. We don't support that. But for this kind of insurance, uh, the kind of you do need, you go to Gabby and basically try to see where you can get the best policy and the cheapest policy that covers the things that you need to cover for your car, for your, your apartment or your home. That's it. That's all. You don't pay them a thing. They're not an insurance company. They are, they are the people looking to help you save yourself from the insurance industry that might be charging you too much. So Gabby is, is like, okay, we're on your side. We're going to find you the right insurance for you. We're not going to charge you a dime for it. They do that by giving you an apples to apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. So they're not beholden to any of them. Gabby makes it easy to search for home or auto insurance. Just link your current in insurance account. Um, and in about two minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have, but quotes from other companies that will charge you less for that exact same coverage. So just like Kayak or Expedia, it's, but this is for insurance. But unlike those travel sites, they'll never sell your info. Gabby will never sell your info to any other company. So you're not going to get any annoying spam or robocalls or, or whatever. It's completely secure. And if they can't find you savings from your current rate, they'll at least let you know, hey, look at this. You actually have the best rate. You, on your own, found this. And they'll verify that for you at no charge. So listen, it's totally free for you to click and get your rate. There's no obligation. It takes two minutes and you can see how much you can save on your car insurance, on your homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby, G-A-B-I.com slash rumble. You got to do the slash rumble and that helps keep us out here on the internets. Gabby.com slash rumble, G-A-B-I.com slash rumble. And hopefully you'll be able to save some money because you were listening to the show. Thank you to Gabby for hearing my voice and saying to yourselves, uh, this is a voice that should be heard in our democracy. It means a lot to me. And, uh, and that's why I've taken a moment here to tell you about them and to thank them for being an underwriter of Rumble. Now, back to the very important matter at hand here. What can we do, the rest of us here across the country, people in other countries who are listening, what can we do to help here with the situation? Mm -hmm. Important. Don't be don't be complicit to the violence that's happening.
happening to people that are black in America. Um, build mutual aid in your community so that you can build a disadvantage against social services that work to exploit and quantify uh, black trauma and poverty um, and start building those resources and make them sustainable in your communities. It's not that the funding will stop. It just means that it'll be redirected to organizations that can actually do the hands-on critical uh, work. Um, you know, be mindful that audits do matter. If you notice that there is gun violence in your community, find out how many crimes are being solved and then ask why they're not being solved. Because if those were white children, we wouldn't have an issue with the gun task force or a gang task force. We would have solved the problem of violence by instituting resources in those communities that were affected by it. Um, why, haven't, why haven't we, this is 2020. Why haven't we fixed this? Because white supremacy, white people benefit from all of these issues. If you look at the people providing education resources and healthcare resources and all the social services that are funded by the money that is used to prioritize a commitment to criminalizing poverty, those people are overwhelmingly uh, white. You know what I'm saying? Like those are the people and they have to reject that. When we talk about standing up for black lives and denouncing your privilege, it means especially in agency where you say it's unfortunate that we treat people this way. You have to say, this is not okay. And I'm not going to only say that it's unfortunate. We need to build a policy that is equal, that participates on their level, that is inclusive for people, um, that does not hesitate to not undermine their actual humanity, to call them like at risk or marginalized or disadvantaged but creates a standard of addressing those issues with resources, not referrals to agencies that would police them further or dismantle their families. Like we lead in foster care. Our children are taken out of their families just for going to school hungry when they could easily put food in backpacks or talk to families about resources. Mm. Um, that's humiliating and it's inhumane. And you still have agency that is saying, well, let's humanize the black people. Guess what? They're already human. So start treating them like people. Um, they can do that. Yeah. And no. yeah, so many of these, these systems are set up to humiliate you, right. to, so, to break your spirit, absolutely. To, to demoralize you. And document and, it all so that you can use that against them. Because at some point, those same words that they use against you will seem critical when you bring them up against those same people that spoke out. I document everything. Because um, I'm always considerate that in time, it's not going to be favorable to say certain things. Um, and we're already there. Um, things that we were, you know, allowing uh, five or 10 years ago um, are embarrassing and shameful to us now. And one of the things that happened when my nephew died was that I was like, whoa, when I saw that the system was not in a place where it uplifted the children or fought for their survival, um, it was my plan to humiliate the process and to expose it. And it's happening. I'm excited about that. Just everybody needs to organize and document everything and then take it to court. And I, th I think you're right. I think that's why Trump has singled out Portland. I think there's been so much going on in Portland uh, in recent years. And, and there has been a loud resistance, an active mm -hmm. resistance and a demand from all kinds of people mm -hmm. uh, that things change and, and they're not going to put up with it anymore. And, 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 uh, when these this latest round of protests that started with George Floyd's murder, um, that people in Portland, you know, who live fifteen hundred to two thousand miles away from Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, weren't going to have any of it in terms of one more one more African American uh, murdered uh, by the state. And um, but the thing with Portland is, and and. You are representative of a number of cities I know, some of them not very large, that have not stopped, not one night, every night there have mm -hmm. been protests since May 26th. Every night uh, this, yep. has been, this has been happening. But in Portland, it is, it is clear to Trump and to Homeland Security and whatever. They must have just figured out, wow, these, these <laughs> people in <laughs> Portland aren't going to go away. Mm -mm. aren't going to shut up. Mm -mm. So we'll shut them up and that mm -mm. will get us reelected. Nope. That, that's their plan. They're trying to kill us at this point. We put out science about the 
use of RCA agents on people that have been quarantined during COVID and how the effects of COVID and the enhanced excessive force, even the emotional trauma that could be utilized. Um, that document, that RCA document that was published by a black PhD that's in mm. neuroscience and uh, chemistry, um, it, it documents the use of force and how it can harm you and the irreparable long-term harm. And I think that he's seeing the investment. I think that the city of Portland, they knew they had this document. Uh, Kate Brown, when she said, oh, all you have to do is announce that you're going to use the agents and the excessive force before you do it. No governor in the state, no mayor, no police commissioner should have allowed any at assaults on any people protesting during a fucking pandemic. The literal point of view is that your your respiratory system should not be harmed. And the fact that they would use agents, um, whether they are chemical agents or even the use of force um, and terrorism, you know, like intimidation, running up on people with, with their jackets or the LRAT. Why would you use assault weapons on people that are protesting during a fucking pandemic? Because they don't know how they're going to be housed. They don't know how they're going to feed their kids. They're losing their jobs. All the news channels at the time when George Floyd died said that all of the inequities for black people were overrepresented and alarming. So do you really think that all these people that are faced with all this data that says that this COVID crisis is going to kill them um, don't realize that your use of all this additional force on them, pulling up people's masks and, and spraying them in their faces, spraying, spraying into cars. Uh, like, are you kidding me? They know what they're doing. They're like trying to fast track the genocide, Michael. They do. They, they do. They do know what they're doing. Yeah. Our leaders gave them an excuse to use force against us. And they're using that force. He's a white supremacist. That's the goal for him. He's like, Oh shit. Let me send my guys out. I mean, he was saying this weeks ago when he was sitting down there in the bunker talking about yeah. how was gonna use it. they're going to do whatever they can. I'm going to let them do it. We knew it wasn't going to be immediate, but That's we knew right. that he was listing and documenting and creating an order for them to come to our cities and attack us. We told people that like two, three months ago. Well, he, he has <laughs> to be stopped. People. He's going to send the people. He has to be stopped. He has to be removed. Uh, this, I hope, will happen. But that which gave us Trump also has to be stopped, mm -hmm. also has to be removed because it was the system that allowed us to get to this awful, mm -hmm. ugly point that we're at. Uh, it, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen overnight. It happened. It's been going on for years and decades. It's been going on throughout the history of this country. Frankly. Every time we tell white people we were protesting when President Obama was the president, they're always like, hmm. And I'm like, yeah, you don't remember? That's when the Black Lives Uprising started. What do you mean? Right. We were saying that why we had a black president for fucking six years. We were saying right. it back in 1619. We've said it forever since we've been in this country being obsessed on stolen land. Like, come on. Not a single, single, not a single federal charge brought against any police officer during President Obama's term. Nobody was arrested and tried. And, and you're right. And, and, this the Black Lives Matter movement, when you think about Trayvon, when you think about uh, Ferguson, this is all during the time of Obama. Yeah. And it's, it, is, it is sad, especially, especially for white people who voted for Obama. It's, it is like, what? <laughs> but we thought that you were okay. We saved you. We saved you. We freed you from slavery. No. If you are yeah. still from black poverty and death, then we're not free. And if black people can't even, we can get rich and still have bad credit and still can't live. <laughs> you know, like there's so many disparities that in my generation, I don't see it getting any better, but I'm going to fight for my grandkids. <laughs> right. right. So, well, that's, I guess, the lesson of, of right now in Portland is that we all have to fight. We all have to get up off the couch. We all have to make our voices heard. And and do the painful things that are going to maybe some people aren't going to like us if we say and do things because there there's a a a system that's set up essentially run by a lot of white liberals or people who think they're liberals. Um, and it is racketeering. It's a, it's a way to keep I, I mean, I see it. I see it in the in the environmental movement 
where you, you've got some people who, you know, what have you done? I say to them, what have you done? Where the, it's, there's more carbon in the air now after making a gazillion solar panels and windmills and electric cars, and we're worse off. So what are you really doing? Who's making the money here? Who, who, are, you, who are you really working for? Because we're, we're losing our planet. We're, we're losing our democracy in this country. All of this stuff. And it's like anybody listening to this, if you're sitting around, I've said this many times, if you're waiting for the DNC to save you, the Calvary isn't coming. They're not, they're not going to save you or us. We have to do this. We have to do this. And, um, and I've been inspired by your story and what you've done there in Portland over the years, what you're doing right now. I hope you know that you've inspired so many of those people in the streets there oh, yeah. in, in Portland. And, and they know it's not, just, it's not just about that two-block area. It's, it's a whole host of things that you've been fighting all these years. And, um, and we all have to join in, all of us. And all of us have to join in. We so have to I, I, in. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for being on uh, my podcast uh, today. I wish everyone in, in Portland well. And, um, uh, you know, I'm going to, as we close out, I'm going to tell people about um, this, uh, this GoFundMe page that we've started to uh, help people who are being attacked and arrested and uh, victimized uh, by these, whether they're the, the secret police force, whether it's the actual police force or whatever. Um, we're not going to take this anymore. Uh, we're committed to this. We're not going away. Um, evil is going away. Hate is going yeah. away. Bigots are going away. That's who's leaving. Yeah. The rest of us are going to have the country we've been promised for 200 years and have never had. Yeah. So this uh, time. That, that's my two cents. <laughs> but, uh, but Teresa, thank you so much. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. I will. Thank we, you. We need you. It's good to have you on the team. I'm thankful. Um, do the work. Yes. Uh, I, I wake up every morning thinking about what am I going to do today? And, um, and, and I, and I want to win too. I'm not just doing this because it feels good. Um, I'm, I'm thinking every day, what can I do to up the ante here? What can I do? What's the next next risk I can take uh, to put myself on the line? Because only if we're all willing to do this are we going to get what we want. It will not be given to us. It will not be given to us. So not at all. <laughs> uh, we know that, but it's fun taking it because we yes. get to document the process of the dismantling, and our children will learn to continue using those tools. Um, we right. teach young activists because we know that they need to be encouraged early. So let's do this. Yes. Keep document, document everything. Document, 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 <laughs> you know, cause the facts don't lie and, 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 and we will beat them at their own game. Absolutely. So, all right. Uh, thank you so much, Teresa. Thank you for, for being on rumble here. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the parts uh, one and two uh, over the past a couple of days, please go back and listen to those. Um, I want to thank on our part one, Garrison Davis, who was our 17-year-old filmmaker and, and, and journalist from the streets of Portland. On our part two, we had Bev Barnum, who founded the Wall of Moms to stand between the police and the protesters to protect mostly these young kids who are standing up for our democracy and today's episode with the great Teresa Rayford, the OG of black lives matter there in Portland, founder of don't shoot Portland and a voice that needs to be heard. I'm grateful to her and to the others uh, who appeared in this special uh, series. And we are going to stay on this uh, subject. So uh, don't think this is just a three part thing on Portland. Trump and Barr are sending these shock troops, these secret police, to many other cities. And they're going to have to be confronted and they're going to have to be fought. It was very disappointing and discouraging here yesterday to see the, the mayor of Chicago back down and all but welcome uh, the troops coming into Chicago. 
Uh, boy, it's just always a reminder, you know, when you think you've got somebody there representing us and, and then they, of course, they're a politician, uh, just always the same old story. And I think it really, it discourages people, the actual citizens, whether you're in Chicago or anywhere else, when you see this happening. I know why so many people over the years just throw their hands up and say, that's it. I've had it. I don't care about this anymore. I don't care about politics, but you can't. You can't take that attitude because you may not care about politics, but I'll, I can guarantee you politics cares about you. Politics really cares about you and is thinking about what it can do to put you right in the spot they want you in, to take from you and give to the rich, to make you work your ass off, more hours, less pay, less benefits. And now in, in the case here where we have literally millions, tens of millions of people unemployed and are now going to lose their federal unemployment this coming week. And when that happens, we're talking about millions of people being threatened with eviction, threatened with being foreclosed on with their mortgage, having their car taken away from them, any of a number of things because they can't pay the bills. And if you do that to tens of millions of people, you are asking for it. Maybe that's what Trump wants. Maybe he's just trying to juice up the uprising, juice up the riots that he hopes will take place. This is, this is all a coming attraction, my friends. Portland, Oregon, Chicago. A federal judge yesterday said that he would not stop Trump from sending these troops in, these unidentified troops, to do battle with the enemy, the enemy being the people of the United States of America. The federal judge the, the, the attorney general of Oregon sued, sued Trump to stop this. And the judge said, no, you know, Trump has appointed how many federal judges over 150. I'm probably it's close to 200 at this point. <sighs> My friends, this is a struggle and we're all going to have to be involved in it. We just can't leave it up to a few people. We just can't leave it up to our kids, to 17 year olds and 19 year olds that are out there. We can't leave it up to those moms in Portland. We all have to be involved. We all have to get ready. We all have to be ready. Go and study what they've done in Portland. Put together what, that, that backpack that you need to put together to be ready for when it comes to your city. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week. That, pack, that backpack has to be filled with provisions to protect you from the tear gas, from the rubber bullets. It doesn't matter that you intend to do nothing violent. It doesn't matter that you have told yourself you're going to obey the law. They don't care. You are the enemy. That's all they need to see, the enemy there on the sidewalk, in the streets, and you're just fair game. And I don't say that to scare you. We all have to get out there. We all have to get out there. We all have to take these risks right now. We can't let them win. Oh, my God. This is about much more than just the election and the defeat of Donald J. Trump. We were already this country before Trump. That's why we got Trump. We, the people, are going to have to do the fight, and we're going to do it nonviolently, and we're going to win, but it won't happen if we leave it up to just a few people to do it. So you have to think about this right now. You have to think about when the moment comes, what will you do? You know, we have many examples in our history, good examples of when that moment came, and your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-grandparents all had a a decision to make whether or not to do the right thing. They didn't just leave it up to John Lewis to walk across the bridge in Selma, Alabama. And after they beat him and the others, more people came. It didn't scare people away. Oh, I don't want to go down to Selma. Oh, look what they did. Look what they did to that young, that young guy, John Lewis. No, mm -mm. no. They doubled and they tripled and they quadrupled their numbers. And that's where we're at right now. That's what we have to do. Think about it. Be ready. Take from the example here of young Garrison Davis, from the mom who had not been involved politically before last week, and then formed this group of bombs to fight these federal bastards. <laughs> and look at Teresa, who's been there for the long haul, standing up, standing up to the people who call themselves liberals, but when it comes time for the fight, aren't there? So thanks for listening in uh, to this series. Uh, three days in a row here on Rumble. 
Uh, I know you're probably thinking, Mike, what is your deal? Uh, you know, you're on, you're off, we, you're here, we're there. Well, that's why I never really wanted to, I never wanted this to be like, like a, well, Mike will be on at 5 p.m. today and it is Wednesday. No, uh, that's not who I am. Um, I'm going to be on as much as I need to be on. And I'm going to be there with you. I want you to know that, that I, uh, and, and hundreds of thousands of people are listening to this. As I said, we, we posted our, our 13 millionth download, uh, this week, 13 million listens since we started at the end of December. That's, it's just amazing. And, um, so, and then I put this up on my social media and then talk about it there. Uh, if you aren't signed up for those, please, uh, consider doing that. Even if you're not like, like I know Twitter kind of is a nasty place, but I try to make it not nasty. <laughs> um, sign up for Twitter, um, sign up for uh, my Facebook and, and, uh, or Instagram. It's easy to find me. And don't forget, uh, during this uh, series, this Donald Trump's police state series, we have started here on Rumble, the Rumble Legal Defense Fund for American Dissidents. And this is a GoFundMe site. And I'm asking all of you to please click on the link on this podcast page, go to it. Uh, it's give what you can give, give a dollar. Um, whatever, 100% of whatever you give is going to go to help those who are being arrested, to those who are being abused, attacked, shot. We are, we are going to be and are heavily involved in this. And one way we've got to help is to help these people, our people, the protesters who are being dragged away by the police. And this, this uh, legal defense fund is going to provide legal help for them. It's going to go entirely to that. Whether it, it, some will be to individuals, but the most of it's going to be to to uh, already nonprofit legal groups that have been set up. They've been set up in many cities, and we will make sure every dime of what you give will go to help those who have been hauled into jail, who don't have bail, who uh, who uh, don't have a lawyer, or they have a lawyer, but they're going to need evidence and research and everything else in order to win if this, if it goes all the way to a, uh, to a trial. Um, but we want to be there for them. We do not want them out in the street thinking that we're going to forget them as they're hauled away and thrown into these unmarked vehicles. So it's the rumble legal defense fund. Uh, every dime you give is going to go to help any protester, any dissident, anybody who's taken down a Confederate statue and, and finds themselves without the help that they need, they're going to get that help. So please give to the Rumble Legal Defense Fund. You find it on GoFundMe. And if you would like to, send me an email. My address is mike at michaelmore.com. That's easy, right? Mike, M-I-K-E, at michaelmore.com. Uh, and it's right, the link is right on the platform page for this podcast that you're listening to. And also, you can send me a voice message. Send me a voicemail. If you hit the link on the, on the, on the main page here of this podcast, you can leave an actual voicemail. You got a full minute. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I listen to every single voicemail and I read every one of your emails uh, to me. Um, I want to thank our executive producer, Basil Hamden, uh, our editor and uh, sound engineer, Nick Quaz, uh, all the other people who are a big help who send me ideas. To those of you who sent me those ideas about our plan and our strategy, uh, for this year right now, 2020. Thank you for that. I am putting together that podcast and that will, I will give that to you shortly. Um, and, and then we, and then we've got to really, I mean, we're already busy, but we got to get more busy, uh, with that. Sign up for my email, send me a voicemail, and then get out there and do the things that, that you've got to do in your community. We're all in this together, all in the same boat. We're going to sink or swim together, folks. I prefer not to sink. I think you're probably with me on that. Thanks for being with me during these three very uh, special episodes on Rumble's emergency podcast system. I'm Michael Moore. This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and we'll talk to you very soon. Mm-hmm.